funeral service was unique. I've taken the funerals of dozens and dozens of people over a pastorate that's uh, that stretched nearly 30 years down in South England, but never knew a funeral like this one. It took about three days. And the first day was a viewing ceremony. And in the huge center Central Church of the Assemblies of God in Calcutta, the body of my friend was exposed to the public. And they came, hundreds and hundreds. Some were Hindu, some were Sikhs, some were Muslim. Many were street kids. And they paid their respects. The following day in the same church, I preached at his service. And I entitled the address, The Man Who Pleases God. The Man Who Pleases God. And I went to this chapter, which I'll handle somewhat differently this morning, but I'd never preached on it before. Isaiah 58, verse 6. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then, 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 then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then, then your righteousness will go before you. Verse 10 is almost a repetition. And if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then... Then, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land. And I will stretch strength and I will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden like a spring to whose, whose waters never fail. Let me link that with uh, another passage. I need three hands here. Here's God speaking in a heartbroken condition. It's in the prophecy of Hosea, and he's almost on the point of breaking with Israel because of the way that his children have treated him. And yet in the eighth verse, he moves to a climax. And we we get one of the greatest revelations of the heart of God that I think you get anywhere in Scripture. How can I give you up? This is Hosea 11, verse 8. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zebulun? 
cities which suffered the judgment of God. My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I turn and devastate Ephraim. For I am God and not man, the Holy One among you. I will not come in wrath. And then I want to go to the, the epistle of John. It says one or two things which if we take literally is going to really affect the way that we, we live our lives. John's epistle and into the first letter that he, uh, that he wrote. That verse was there when I read it earlier this morning. And it can't have been shifted since. 1 John and chapter 3. Let's go down to the, can't see in this light, the 37th verse. No, it can't be that. The problem with print these days is it's not the same quality as it used to be a few years ago. Verse 17. If anyone, if anyone has material possession and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him. Dear children, let us love, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. The guy who was in the coffin had given his life to so many people. I quoted at the service the words that Charles Spurgeon, a great Baptist preacher of the, the late 19th century, said on, the, on an occasion when he was referring to the evangelist George Whitfield, who'd lived a hundred years or so before him. Spurgeon said, most men I meet are half dead, but Whitfield was twice alive. It's amazing what you can do with your life when it's placed into the, into the hands of, of God. The man who God is pleased with is the man who understands the character of God and the understanding of the character of God informs the conduct of the man who knows God. When you have an insight into the nature of God, it will so inform your life that your life will be controlled by what you know of the Lord. To put it another way, your theology will inform your life and your lifestyle. I've been into Asia twice in the last two and a half months. After I left India having taken the funeral of my friend who's a legend already in Bengal. I found myself back again just a couple of weeks ago. 30,000 or so people came to meetings in the center of India between Hyderabad and, and uh, Bangalore. Extreme Hindus were actually sending rockets fireworks into the center of the huge open-air auditorium in 
order to create panic. Hundreds respond to the gospel. But what stays in my mind is something that happened right at the end of those meetings down south, India. I was traveling in a, on the back of a cart pulled by two oxen. Had some very unusual modes of transport, and apart from once being on the back of an elephant, we decided to pay a visit to the loo halfway through the journey, which was like sitting on the back of Niagara Falls. I think the ox cart one was perhaps the most unusual. And then I started to weep like a kid when I got off the cart. I was in a forest and the, a bit of it had been cleared and there was a dilapidated house that had once been quite substantial. It was dark at night and I was tired and I'd really had enough. And along either side of the path before which the cart stopped were lined elderly people. And they grabbed my hand and they wanted me to pray for them and guided my hands to their forehead one, one after another. Older people tend to have a sort of similarity, the, the grayness of the hair and the crinkling of the, of the skin and... We, we eventually went just in the area just in front of the house, the broken down house. And there's something that looked a little bit like a cattle shed. And we, we had, a, had, had a meeting, it'd be about nine o'clock in the, in the evening. And they were praising the Lord. And they'd set up a round the clock prayer meeting for this crusade. And uh, they wanted to meet someone who'd been very much involved in the actual preaching. And. Um, I don't know what happened. I saw my mother. I mean, that sounds a little bit mystical, but there is a sense in which, as I say, there's a common denominator with, with elderly people. And, and she came back, and, and, and I could sort of, in my imagination, see, see, see my mum. And then I, I, I looked at where these old people were living. In the ground floor of the, of the house, they got beds adjacent and, and, and mattresses and be about 30 beds. And um, then, because I'm pretty bright at arithmetic, 60-odd people in, in the enclosure outside, and I thought, where on earth do the others sleep? And as I got back into the vehicle, because it was no longer an ox cart, they brought a, a jeep, I, I saw these folk go into the cattle shed and on a bit of linen they made their beds curled up in fetal position and then the floods of emotion just took right over me I wouldn't let my mum live like they were living and these are gods on children so I involuntarily told the guy who, was, who brought me there to get them beds and mattresses by Christmas. I'm not telling you this as a self-serving story. You'll see why I'm telling you this in a moment. And then I suddenly said, and, and pull that jolly shed down and build another. If I have to, have to rob a bank, I'll finance that. 
I, I got a friend in India. We, we've just opened a huge hospital in, at least I said, we're just about to open another hospital in on the outskirts of, uh, of, of Bombay. He's, he's a leading oncologist, an Indian, and he could be earning a fortune here in the West. Uh, and he said to me, he's a very, very close friend, like the guy who I buried. He, he said to me, Tony, sometimes I think that the weight of sorrow in our world, the weight of, of pain, the aggregate, is so intense that Almighty God must groan as he tries to bear it. And you know, that wasn't a fanciful comment on the, on the part of my friend because if you, if you read into that revelation of God's heart in, in Hosea, you, you find God in a sort of conundrum as he, as he sees his people doing what they shouldn't do and, and, and receiving great difficulties in their society, economically as well as spiritually, because of moving away from the Ten Commandments. And, and it's right that there should be a severance between this holy God and this unholy people. And yet he says, how can I give you up? For I am not man. I am God. And the writer goes on to express the emotion of God in terms of the word compassion, which in the Hebrew means to feel, to come alongside, to feel with. His compassions are new every morning, says Lamentations. There is never a day in which the heart of God is not moved in compassion towards humanity as a whole and every individual. I had great problems preaching last Sunday. I just picked up. In my office, which sometimes is a, a center of news that comes in from various parts of the world. And I just picked up the story, can you believe it? Of some poor Christian woman in Baghdad, whose child had been taken from her with the extreme Muslim parties. And I'm not suggesting all Islamic people are extreme. I honor a lot that is within Islam. But the Christian minority is very much oppressed. And sometimes the warring factions take it out on the, on the diminishing church in, in Iraq. And this lady's baby had been snatched. They returned the body. They decapitated the head. And I was thinking, oh God, how on earth do you deal with that woman having gone through that sort of experience. I have no easy 2 plus 2 equals 4 simplistic theology to resolve that one. All I do know is that the character of God has in its essence compassion. 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 It's the great word of the Old Testament. It's, it's there interwoven in the New Testament. The Bible will not just allow the historical mantra that God is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Joseph. It goes on and it says, He is the God of the widow. He is the God of the orphan. And that formula is found on many occasions in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Jesus throws a, a theological hand grenade amongst the theologians when on one occasion he's saying what God is like. He's like a shepherd who goes after a sheep. He's like a woman who's, who's lost a coin and does a spring clean in order to find the coin. And what's more, he's like a father 
who bares his legs in uncharacteristic fashion. You don't do that if you're an elderly person in the Middle East. And he runs down the mountainside to embrace his pig-smelling son. And he says, this, my son, was lost but is found. He was dead but he is alive again. The compassion of God, the compassion of God. And in the 58th chapter of Isaiah, this chapter which haunts me beyond which I cannot go, God be my judge, I am not exaggerating. We're told that the man who pleases God is a man whose theology informs his life. A man who is not concerned with word only, but enclothes the word or illustrates the word with action. This world is full of words. So much noise. You get it on the dentist chair. You get it in the leisure center. Wherever you go, a cacophony of noise. It's not noise this world wants. It's not creedal statements that this world wants. If your creed does not affect your conduct, if your doctrine doesn't affect your demeanor, then according to the Apostle John, who was close to Jesus, you actually declare your faith to be non-viable, unacceptable. If you see those who are in the body of Christ, as well as those outside the body of Christ, who are in need... And you pass by on the other side. Then according to both the litmus test in the Old Testament and the New Testament, your understanding of theology is inaccurate. And you have not entered into the heart of the gospel. And thus I spoke at that funeral service about my friend who'd come up from from North India and gave his life amongst the prostitutes, amongst the kids of the streets. Something like 60 to 70,000 kids on the streets of Calcutta. In between going to India, I've been also in Africa. You ask me how I managed to be principal of a college as well, then that's one of my students. Somehow it works out in the in the wash. I was in Kampala, the central city of Uganda. We had a a university mission, the like of which if it had been in Edinburgh, where the Christian Union is not exactly popular, or it had been in Stirling where the Christian unions have problems, or it had been in what's become my city of, of Glasgow, we'd have been headlines in the Scotsman and the Herald. I mean, 4,000 students coming to meetings. 10,000 Bibles being distributed. The vice chancellor and the, and, the, and the faculty of the, of the university coming to the meetings. I mean, extraordinary. But the beautiful young lass who met me from, from the plain, who comes from the islands off the coast of North Scotland and is doing a remarkable job. She said, Donnie, do you know what happened yesterday? So I said, no, tell me. I arrived on the Monday. She said, the police cleanse the streets of Kampala. So I said, what do you mean? They rounded up the street kids, 200 or so, put
put them in lorries and dump them 20 miles or something like that outside the city. She said, we're going tomorrow. Do you want to come? And so I wended my way with her in her Jeep. And we saw these kids, average age, maybe four or five, frightened, many of them with scabies and so forth. And I honored the work that I've seen in so many parts of the world, including Glasgow and Edinburgh, of folks who, who are ministering to, to these sort of children, to, to this sort of jetsam and flotsam and society. And I was saying to the university professors and, and, and some of the, of the leading people in, in, in Uganda that unless as a professed Christian country you're involved in that sort of situation, then your Christian heritage has been betrayed. I take off for, for uh, where am I going? Nairobi on Thursday. I, I, I took a calculated risk in Africa some years ago. I found myself at a place called Kabarak, uh, some miles from, from Nairobi, and I was supposed to be addressing pastors, and there was a, such a lot of people who were coming into the final meeting, and the security was intense, and uh, then the news was broken to me that the president was coming. And I thought, my goodness, what am I going to what am I going to do, doctoring my address, because I was speaking about the gospel and how that would deal with the tribal factions within Kenya. And I'm thinking, if I, if I put that across too sharply, I could be on the first plane from the airport. But I decided to go for it. This was before Mandela had been released from Robin Island in South Africa and the, the Rainbow Nation, so to speak, had been, had been launched. And, and, and I dared to say, because I, I, felt it was, I felt it was application which was acceptable within that context, that Kenya has no right to criticize South Africa with its black-white apartheid when, when the place is riddled with apartheid as far as, the, as far as the tribes are concerned. And I went on not to preach a, a destructive message, not to, as a, as a European, come in with a full blast of criticism of Kenya, but I took them to the cross of Christ and the blood of Jesus and the, the common humanity that Jesus represents and, and the family of God, which is international, Jew and Gentile, made one through the shed blood of Jesus. Jesus. And I sat down and I wondered what would happen. And the president, uninvited, came to the lectern and the TV cameras were whirring. Two hours later, I was in Nairobi and the people with whom I was staying put the news on. I think it was six o'clock or something like that in the evening. It's quite a shock to the system when you find yourself on the news and there I was making this declaration about Kenya over against South Africa and then they led into what the president had to say and as a result of that I get such treatment in Kenya I feel like James Bond without the women <laughs> with a Mercedes and a bodyguard I tell my wife when I get home and it doesn't impress her one a little bit but, but I'm hoping to be there again in the next uh, 
the next few days, and if I have time with Daniel Moy and some of the leaders, as well as the, the churches, I'll be saying exactly the same thing. When something like five or six hundred kids a day are abandoned on the streets of Kenya's cities because of AIDS, then it's time that a government that claims to be Christian does something about it. You see, if, 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 you're, if you really want to, to make an impact, says Isaiah, in this world, if you want to live on in terms of what you're doing, then it will be as you give your life, as you invest your life in the interests of others, as did my friend, then your light will go before you. It will shine as the dawning. The idea is of a man having, having run well. The story of his life has been brought to a marvelous conclusion. There he is ushered into the presence of God. And he goes as one of the wealthiest men that there's ever been. Not because he had material possessions, but because there are those who will rise up and call him blessed. And when the Sikhs and the Muslims and the Hindu make some sort of acknowledgement of the death of a leading Christian because of what he has achieved, not only is the achievement wonderful in itself, but the knock-on effect as far as the credibility of the gospel is concerned is enhanced. I tell my students back in Glasgow, we have two particular requirements for the church today. And the one is communication, but the other is credibility. And it's your credibility that makes your communication acceptable. Scotland is put off Christianity because the church, by and large, has failed to allow the theology to inform its style, its style of life, its style of reaction. Sometimes the evangelical church can compromise. It did in southern Africa. As far as apartheid was concerned, I'm speaking with a large landscaping view. There were marvelous exceptions. And historically, there have been wonderful exceptions of those who have refused to go along with the tide of popular opinion. William Wilberforce from Hull, for example, standing up against slavery. Scotland, which benefited by the slave trade. One third of the people in West Indians who were immigrants into West India came from Scotland, and a lot of the money came into Scotland. Our hands historically are not clean. But there have been, there have been those who've stood against the tide of indifference and the tide of greed who have protested, and their impact historically has been remarkable. Wilberforce Spurgeon. You can line them up. The light has shone in the darkness. They've almost sort of apprehended an immortality this side of eternity because what they are, what they have been, and what they have done has impacted an oncoming generation who take their yardstick from what they have seen from these people. And don't you see that this is, this is part of the challenge for Scotland, part of the challenge for Edinburgh, part of the challenge for destiny. I don't know of a group of churches that I admire more than the ones that you represent. I don't say that patronizingly. I'm a sort of walking ecumenical movement. I'm in a different church virtually every Sunday. Like some Sundays, I'm so confused, I think I'll be pitching up at the wrong church and preaching from the wrong pulpit. And My, my point is I, I get a, an overall perspective of, of Christianity in, in Scotland. And I'm so grateful even for 
for what was said about your, your, your Christmas approach to, to your carol service and, and, and what, you're, what you're going to do. You see, the practical way in which we demonstrate our faith becomes the most impressive apologetic. I, I mean, my, my college, we've got 200 students, and, and sometimes I think we stuff them with theology. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not anti-academic. I, I, I did a couple of degrees, and I did pass my 11 plus some, some years or so ago, whereas you fellows and girls never even tested you at 11. I mean, it was a sweating experience to wonder whether you get a brown envelope, a white envelope. A white envelope would determine whether it was a grammar school or an ordinary school. And, and somehow my guardian angel was working overtime, and I got a white one. But the important thing is not what you've imbibed solely in terms of biblical knowledge. That is obviously highly significant. But what you have done with that knowledge is even more significant. The man who pleases God, the woman who pleases God, is a woman who is allowed what she believes to influence her, her behavior, his compassions, they fail not. Sometimes I think we've lost the ability to cry, even when you can do nothing, just to show your emotion has some value for the person the people who are in need. Compassion means that you, you move alongside. You take on the problem as though it's your own. The only place in Glasgow, I beg your pardon, the only place in Scotland where outside of a, a church typical service context I've ever been applauded was the university that's alongside our college right in the center of, of Glasgow, the University of Strathclyde, when, when they asked me if I would come and give a lecture on ethics and why it is that how we live our lives is very important in determining our economic strategy and our future as business people. And as I was confronted with a crowd of pagans, as far as I could see, good students, but probably thought, they thought that this guy was just an anachronism with this sort of monastic community tucked in between Strathclyde University and Caledonian University. So I didn't go through the front door, I went through the back door. I, I quoted them a piece of philosophy, as you would that men should do to you, do you also to them. And I gave it them in several other contexts in, in Asia, from the Koran, from Confucius's teachings, fr from from what is largely apprehended within Shintoism in Japan. And then that right at the end, I unpacked the story of Jesus. And they stood and they clapped, as you would that men should do to you, do you also to them. You've probably found this difficult to believe, but I hardly ever go into a bathroom without thanking God for pure water and an ability to keep my body clean. I've watched dear men and women in two third world countries, sometimes with insensitive tourists taking pictures, if you can believe, 
I've watched them try to wash discreetly but publicly in the streets because that's the only place where they can get water and where they can cleanse themselves. I had little kids in my arms after the tsunami disaster. And just a few weeks ago, 300 of those kids, God bless the Indians, in a school that's been purpose-built for them, being looked after. And when I'd finished with the, with, uh, the president of uh, Kenya at his university that he's built and the conference that I was addressing just last year, I went to address some missionaries gathered together from all over Africa. And in the huge auditorium, they brought down a couple of American missionaries, brought down a little bundle of life and plonked it in my arms. An African kid, they just found this little child in the excrement of an African toilet. They'd washed the kid and they put him in my arms and fortunately he was he was adopted. We are called to exercise compassion. We're called to demonstrate that what we believe in our hearts informs our bank statement, informs how we live and what we do. And unless, unless, unless we give some sort of theological illustration of what we believe, then the Bible suggests our theology is not biblical. It is in vain. If you feed the hungry, if you clothe the naked, if you demonstrate the compassion of God, says Isaiah, then at the end of your life, you will go through into an eternal life and your light will shine forever for the way that you lived. And the greater than Isaiah, the man from Nazareth takes up the same theme as he describes the end day when some of us shall stand before the throne of God so embarrassed because our checkbook was not a theological statement because we piled up what was unnecessary. Abraham went from one place to another place to another place to another place and all he did was build an altar. He owned no land apart from the land in which he buried his wife when he left this world. Some of us go from one house to another house to another house bigger, better, all the time knowing full well that our theology tells us that when 70, 80, 90 years have come, more or less, we leave all that. The only thing that we can carry forward is what we were and what we have been and what we have done. And it's on the basis of that, having responded to the blood shed on the cross of Calvary, that God will say, well done, you good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. I want you to reflect on those words from Isaiah again. And those words from John's epistle. And the thought of God in Hosea. His heart breaking. His compassions new.
And may it be that God, in his grace, will give you a similar sort of compassion to be able to realize as one of the great writers who happens to be an adjunct lecturer at at International Christian College says in a book which I have on display at the back there, and if you buy the book, I'll ensure that the finances go to pay for a Christmas party among street kids in, in Calcutta. Compassion is the quest to be human, as God intended. It is not a means to an end. We're not compassionate in order to make converts or as an end to poverty itself. Neither is compassion motivated only out of a sense of common humanity. The purpose and motivation of compassion are one and the same, to be like God. She goes on at the end of that first chapter to write these remarkable closing words. She says, We are never closer to God, never closer to keeping his commands, never closer to pure worship, never closer to our true humanity than when we are meeting the needs of the most vulnerable. That book I have to ask nine pounds for, but most of the nine pounds will go to the purposes that I suggested. I've also got with me I could give this away, but if you give money, then I'll take it and use it for kids on the streets. Patrick Dixon's remarkable book on AIDS, the problems that are facing the world. 1,000 people, it is reckoned, are impregnated with HIV AIDS in Calcutta every day. And then a most remarkable book written by a woman for women, dealing with the problems that women face around the world, problems of female circumcision, problems of the sex trade and so forth. True Grit, this book is selling something like a million. It's gone to the top of the, of the books being sold in the United Kingdom. You need to buy a book like that. And I would suggest to you, if you bought Understanding Compassion, read it, then it can go as a Christmas present to one of your, to one of your friends. And then there are some leaflets about the Dalits in India, the untouchables, who recently have gone through a remarkable work of the Holy Spirit. And around India, the untouchables, 40% of India are either moving into Buddhism or Christianity. We've been asked to establish 3,000 Christian schools in India by the political leaders of the Dalits, can you believe? And within Operation Mobilization, of which I'm a director, we said that we'll take 100, and we've gone to about 40. If you want to support that little venture then the leaflets are on the tables at the back. Thank you for listening. It's a pleasure always to be with destiny. Let's pray. Father, as I hand this service back to Peter, firm up in our hearts all that came from you and help us to respond. And what was incidental, may that be erased. We thank you for your compassions. Fail not new every morning, declared so eloquently on the cross of Christ our Saviour. Thank you, Tony. I want to take a moment before we close this service to give you an opportunity to respond to God. Uh, I don't know all of you here, but you know, I do know that God does. He knows every one of you. He knows every detail of your life. And God's highly interested in your not just well-being, but your eternal well-being. Tony's challenges in the way we live on this earth. This life on this earth will be gone quickly. 
But Jesus came to give us a hope of a life beyond this earth in heaven. You know, the best way you could live is live an incredible life that brings honor to God and benefits others on earth. And when you die, you die happy, right into the presence of Jesus for eternity. And that is completely possible, not by your own efforts, but because Jesus died for you on the cross. He took your sin, he took my sin, he took our brokenness. And when he died on that cross, he paid the ultimate sacrifice for us to be completely forgiven so that we won't be paying the price for our own sin when we die, but we accept that he took the price for us so we can go to heaven. He did the time, we did the crime. His pain, our gain. And this morning, I'm going to give you a very simple opportunity to make your own response to Jesus, to accept what he did for you on the cross, to ask your forgiveness and to commit yourself to following him and living this great life that Tony has described so clearly this morning. Let's pray. Dear Lord God, thank you so much that you're an all-compassionate and loving God. And God, your compassion is for the poor. And your compassion is for us. God, your heart broke so much you sent Jesus into this world to deal with the very heart issue that causes all the problems in our world, that heart issue of sin. And Jesus, when you died on that cross, you took our sin. We thank you for that. Every one of us in this room is incredibly grateful because we realize we're sinners. And that sin would take us to hell. But Jesus, you took that for us. Just while we're praying, if you're here today and you're saying, Peter, this morning I want to accept what Jesus did for me on the cross. I want to ask him for his forgiveness. I'm willing to change my life and follow him for the rest of my days. I believe that he rose again from the dead. If that's you this morning, then I want you to do a very simple thing. I'm going to pray a prayer and I invite you to repeat this prayer after me. I don't want you to pray it loud. I want you to pray this in your heart. Pray it quietly. Make it your own prayer of commitment to Jesus. So if that's you this morning, you repeat this prayer after me right now. Pray, dear Lord God, I thank you for sending Jesus to die for me on the cross. Jesus, I believe that you took my sin and my shame. And right now I ask you to forgive me and to cleanse me. Thank you. Jesus, I believe in the third day you rose again. And right now I make a decision that from this point forward till the day I meet you face to face I'm going to do my best to follow you and live a great life that brings you honor on earth. Thank you for hearing my prayer. This morning, thank you, you have accepted me. In Jesus' name, amen.